Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on the rise and fall of the great powers. Our speaker today is Paul Kennedy, who is the J. Richardson Dilworth Professor of History at Yale. Paul is one of the greatest living historians, and he will discuss his classic work, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. This book was published nearly 35 years ago, and it was an immediate sensation. It became a bestseller because the book tells the story about why great powers decline and explores which countries will likely take their place. Paul predicted that the U.S. and the Soviet Union would decline in their respective power, and that China was an ascending power because of its large population, and that with its productivity growth, would have the resources to build a world-class military. I want to learn from Paul about why certain empires succeed and others fade away, and what America can do to succeed in a multipolar world. I want to find out about whether India will be the next great power, and how a country's geographic position can determine its destiny. Buckle up. If you missed it, check out last week's program with Princeton professor Aaron Friedberg and how we screwed up our engagement with China, while we gambled on sharing our technological know-how and our trade relations with an ever-increasing authoritarian state and what we can do about it now. All right, let's begin with historian Paul Kennedy. Go ahead. I'm interested in the story of great power relations, but it isn't simply the diplomatic histories of Bismarck or Neville Chamberlain's appeasement or Stimson and the coming of the Cold War. I'm also interested in the great underlying shifts that happen in world affairs. And boy, in this past 20th century of ours, so much happened in terms of great underlying shifts. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was competition between almost up to six or seven great powers before they staggered into the First World War, which exhausted some of them so they fell away, like Imperial Russia and the Austro-Hungarian Habsburg Empire. And then in the Second World War, which was only finished when decisively this new great power and this new great source of the United States came along to enter the war in Europe and to win the war in the Pacific. For me, watching the United States reassert itself in the early 1980s under President Reagan provoked in me the query that the historians have, to what extent is this story of America's rise to world power a wonderful historical echo of the rise and fall of the great powers since the great power system was set up approximately around 1500 with the coming of the early modern states, their formal royal navies and royal armies. Could a historian using economic data, comparative data, tell the whole story of the great powers, not in diplomatic terms, but in terms of the shifts of their competence on the battlefield, the coming of their new economic resources, the shift in the productive balances, the population size, and the success and failure of these great powers. You had a wonderful spread of history from approximately 1500 to the year 2000, and you could end the book by reflections on whether the coming 21st century would have the same story of the rise and fall of the great powers, only this time a question mark would be over whether the Soviet Union could exist or fall behind 
remember I'm writing this in the 1980s, and whether the United States could, as Mr. Reagan wanted, reassert itself and still be the number one great power. Here was a wonderful challenge for the historian who likes big, long-term history about great power shifts. The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers has become a classic since it was published in 1988. What was your key insight? I think the hidden word for me here, Larry, was organization. At the very beginning of the story, set in the 16th and 17th centuries, we see the competition of the great powers, which ones succeed and which ones fell, as a way in which state organizing systems could accrue sufficient resources from within their own domains, mobilize those resources and transfer them into the creation and then the training and then the organization of new armies and navies and put them into the field against their rival contesting powers. This was an era of rivalry between great powers for the next 400 years of our story. Organizing for war and for your long-term capacity seemed to me the essential meaning of the rise and fall of the great powers. How do you succeed and how do you avoid that falling behind of imperial Spain, Portugal, and eventually the Dutch Republic? How was it that one of those great powers, Great Britain, managed to stay at the top of this for the remarkable period of 200 years before it's overtaken by the United States halfway through the Second World War? I spent my career as a professional bond trader specializing in government debt of the United States and Japan, as well as in the emerging markets, where default was a constant concern. These great powers each had different access to credit markets and different levels of creditworthiness. The Spanish and French defaulted several times on their bonds, but the English did not. Spain didn't have an advanced bond system. It tried to float some bonds in northern Italy and then some in the Netherlands. Its raising of money and funds was relatively primitive. Compared with the 17th and 18th century, fundraising through the British stock market and onto government bonds market, following the Dutch example, was much more sophisticated. In your book's first chapter, you discuss the Spanish Empire. And what a strange empire it was, geographically speaking. Sure, the empire included Spain and the New World, but it also included the Netherlands and Austria. This empire was not contiguous. Empires are difficult to organize and manage as it is, but separation must have been unbelievably challenging given its poor communication methods of the time. You put your finger on the key aspects of understanding the great power system as the story unfolds over the past 500 years. Geography. Some of these great powers are more advantaged than others in their geography. Spain had a large amount of resources within it, including especially personnel and recruitment resources. It also had the advantage of this flow of silver from the New World, and until the Dutch revolt, of possessing the most prosperous part of Europe in terms of GNP, which were the Spanish Netherlands. America is contiguous and massive in scale and scope. How important are these geographical features in the contest to be a great power? Americans don't really think about in terms of our advantages, though others do when they look at us. 
Anybody who drives across this giant nation, as I have done, from the East Coast side over to the shores of the Pacific, can only be struck by just how enormous it is if you're going on campground of America with your family and every day you promise to get through 400 miles, you're just going on and on and on and on. So one reason why the U.S. surges into its number one role after 1943 to 1945, you could turn cornfields into B-47 transport aircraft. You could turn wheat fields into gigantic production of trucks area. On and on it went. Imagine the United States' great power had a cluster of productive assets in Maine and other parts of New England. But between it and its other assets down in Florida, there was hostile territory, or there was the Alps, or there was the noxious French government always interfering. What if a giant part of the United States in the middle was all France? This is a problem for Spain. How does it keep connections and connectivity between about four or five productive areas especially when there's rival great powers nipping away at your feet like the Dutch or actually located bang in the center like France. Imagine that. The United States was blessed with a robust national railroad system with dozens of overlapping internal lines and tens of thousands of miles of track. I like sometimes, Larry, to hypothesize that certain things in history just didn't happen. You know, the steam engine did not happen. The railway system, which followed on from a steam engine, did not happen. I try to imagine what the United States would look like by the latter part of the 19th century if they were not the railway system, the network built down the East Coast and across to the Midwest, because the railway allows you not only to have millions of new settlers going west, but it allows transportation of goods in an internal market which has no equivalent. The internal market of the United States, within about one generation or so, becomes two or three times the traditional smaller European great powers. You might have an internal rail network in Germany by the end of a century or in Great Britain even before it, but this one is gigantic. And it allows capitalism to develop in an uncontrolled way when governments need to mobilize that capital when they need to put troops on those railway lines, when they need to send men to the East Coast ports to ship them off to Europe in 1918 or again in 1944, it can be done. Now let's contrast the U.S. with the Soviet Union's rail system. The Soviet Union had a single lane track across the whole country. This seems incredibly vulnerable to attack or some sort of natural disaster. When you look at the railway lines of the Soviet Union going out of Moscow and St. Petersburg or Leningrad up to the Finnish border or across to the Polish border, it's nothing like the size and intensity and productivity of the American railway system. You're left in the Russian case with the proud claim that at least we have the longest railway line in the world, Larry, single lane for so many parts of the journey, remember, when one train comes in one direction and another in the other, that you have to find this railway junction where you can park by the side. And in the middle of this, a giant forest, big lakes, and a rather shaky line of communications 
to the Far East. Economists and strategic studies experts use that term robust. It's wonderful to think about it. It means that your system is resilient. If a certain railway line coming from the Great Lakes to Chicago was cut by some sort of satellite bomb or whatever, that you could still get goods back and forth by using the lower lines going through Kentucky, going through Virginia and coming to the East Coast. What if you have this single long vulnerable line right away across 11 time zones, a couple of saboteurs and others could take it out? There's incredible vulnerability there. One of your key insights is that the great powers can quickly increase their military spending in wartime and then reduce it to a manageable level during peacetime so as not to undermine economic growth or productivity. This is one of the big, big questions for me that I've nuzzled over for the past 40 or 50 years. What is a sufficient allocation of your resources to bring you military security so that if it comes to a great power war, you could transform your productive resources from peacetime needs and consumption to wartime needs, but then swing back after the war is over to a decent percentage of defense spending, but not enough so that it has its own damage in peacetime to your competitive productivity. Did Spain overspend in the 16th and 17th century? You bet it did. Did it organize its fundraising to be able to deal with the challenges? Well, not as well as some other powers. What sort of balance did the Dutch Republic have in the 17th and 18th century that they got it right for so long? Tapping enough of your national resources to give you a flow of funds which would then be transformed into a big Dutch Navy, but not so much that you would bring down the Dutch Republic. How did the wonderful Victorian system work in the 19th century? You could be spending a certain percentage of your GDP on your big Royal Navy, not much in the way of your army, and you could run a world system for about 150 years. China's geography is incredibly problematic. It borders 14 countries, many of whom are hostile to it. It has very long trade routes for its energy and its exports that it cannot protect. How will geography determine whether China can become a great power? I think about geography and geopolitics affecting strategy all the time. I like to persuade my students at Yale to imagine the relative positions of each of the competing nation states on our planet. And I also begin to take notes about what goes on in terms of the competitive industries, the raw materials resources that each of these countries have, and the dependency upon economic trade routes at sea to get a better understanding of which of these competitive great powers is going to be successful in the 21st century going into the 22nd century and how they can report back to their superiors in Mars about who's going up and who's going down. China has an awful lot of neighbors around its borders, as you say, 14, not all of whom are friendly. So this country, if it is to stay a unified great power, it's going to need to have very considerable investment in land resources, which the United States didn't need to have. The United States does not need a very large army on the Canadian border. This China, however productive, is dependent upon a flow of 
raw materials resources coming to it, and the earnings of massive exports flowing out from there. It can protect its own coastline with newer asymmetric warfare systems, but whether it will ever turn out to be a great world power in the way we've understood it, as the Spanish World Empire or the Dutch or especially the British World Empire or the American World Empire after 1945, is very hard to imagine. And one assumes that the wiser heads in Beijing say, we are not going that route. We are going to get increasing efficiency and productivity at home. We are going to be the dominant power all over the Western Pacific and Southeast Asia, that's for sure. But we're not going much further than that because geography will fly in the face of our ambitions to be as prosperous and as militarily strong as we possibly can be. Next topic, the British Empire. Britain started the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century. It recycled its profits investing in the U.S., the Dominions, and its other colonies to build railroads and other projects. Britain combined its technological advantages with its advanced financial intermediation capabilities to grow its consumer base for its products and get access to raw materials. It's a really wonderful long-term story of technology organization and then shifts in the world power balances. It's situated in the productive climate of the world, offshore islands, so it doesn't have to invest in a big army. It has a lot of domestic resources, including coal reserves, which help it when new organization and technology kicks it off the ground to the first industrial revolution in world history. It also has a wonderful fundraising and parliamentary supported financial system. And it's not just your domestic capital, Larry. You can raise capital from other investors across the globe who put it in the city of London. And then the city of London exports it outwards to economic systems across the globe, all through the 19th century up to 1914. This is an extraordinarily beneficial win-win-win situation. So you absolutely want to avoid war, which is why the city of London and Lord Rothschild in 1914 were aghast when Great Britain declared war on Germany, its best trading partner. Isn't it remarkable that the British bureaucracy of just a few thousand men could manage a global empire of a billion people. First of all, at the high point of Western technology advantages over the rest of the world, you could run these giant empires. Once you had sent your redcoats in to conquer them or to drive out your rival armies, like the armies of France and some of the Indian princes, you could send in your organizers and your railway lines to be in charge of a vast, vast subcontinent of India to take advantage of various quarreling Indian Maharajas from the British perspective, a relatively benign system. And I suppose compared with Mongol conquests of various of their lands or the Nazis in Eastern Europe, it definitely was benign. If you look at the more recent literature of Indian nationalist historians, the picture you get is one of cruel control over the Indian subcontinent until the system breaks down with the British not having the resources to keep up this rather large empire after the Second World War. But for a long time, the story is indeed of this rule by a small nation over a gigantic 
country of about 800 million to a billion people. Next topic is government finance. I want to go over two examples. The first is Newfoundland, which was a separate country outside of Canada before the Second World War. Newfoundland defaulted on its debt, and the British High Commissioner was sent in to replace the Democratic Parliament to balance Newfoundland's budget by cutting spending and raising taxes. And sure enough, the bondholders got paid back in full. The second example is Rhodesia. Here is a country that includes a few thousand Brits living there. And to Lord Keynes' disbelief, the African emerging market country can borrow money at a substantially lower interest rate than Britain's largest railroad company. And the reason is that bondholders were sure they would get paid back because of the efficacy of the colonial budgetary system. Newfoundland, that giant but cold and chilly fish-exporting, timber-exporting country, was separate from Canada until the late 1940s. It could have its governance controlled from Whitehall, from the colonial office, and could have its bonds issued by London and the British Treasury, as Keynes knew. There was to be guarantees by an efficient government that you would pay back on the loans which had been floated, whether it was in Rhodesia or elsewhere. The City of London was willing to fund financially across the globe. It would have the guarantee of its own government, but at the end of the day, it would pay back. British governments were very worried that if something went wrong inside Rhodesia or Newfoundland or some Caribbean island, You would need to reassert control to reassure your bondholders that you were getting that 6% or 8% on the investments which you had made. How important to the success of the British Empire was a common currency, sterling, a free trade zone, a military alliance, and for the Dominions at least, a common culture? This is a wonderful question and a wonderful area for us to pick apart Before 1914, Roseberry, the liberal imperialist prime minister, would sometimes sit back and say how wonderful it all is, how it all works together in such an integrated way. British exports go into British ships and they go out of the port of London and they go across the globe to Argentina to put in new advanced railway systems there. Argentina grows all of the beef and wheat and it comes back on the same ships to the free trade country of 45 million people. Because we have free trade, we purchase from across the globe. Because we have the advantage of a communication system from undersea cable communications to railways to ships, we send it out. It's funded by the city of London. And we don't have to pay much military security because we're on island. And it all works very well. So the question is, why couldn't this British-centered world empire with all of the advantages of free trade, terrific investment from the city of London, a flow out of exports all across the globe, why couldn't it just last forever? The assumption that to the Indians and to the Africans and everybody else, If you imitate us, then, you know, in a century or two's time, you could be like us as well. So learn the English language, have a British judiciary system, have a primitive parliament, wear British clothes, imitate British fashions, 
you become like us. And the more the world becomes like us, the greater advantage it is for the world. So why should anybody bring this to a halt? No wonder the financiers in London screamed when the Great War came in 1914. It diverted resources to build ever more destroyers and frigates. Adam Smith would have said, what does a destroyer earn you? Larry, nothing, except the security in the North Sea. You have to pay for a giant army, which you never wanted. The funding of Kitchener's army or General Haig's army on the Western Front by 1917-18 is draining your resources. The British have been employing a balance of power strategy on the European continent since at least 1815. And this allowed the British to have a large navy and a small army to employ on the continent rarely and sparingly. Unfortunately, the two world wars of the 20th century show the inadequacies of that strategy. From the 17th, 18th century onwards, the existence of a balance of relative strength between the various European powers so that none of them would be dominant was a key part of their thinking strategically. If it could balance itself by some laws of physics, there's three competing powers in the south allied to each other, and there's three competing powers in the north and center allied to each other, and every so often the British might have to tilt in by coming on one side or the other, by fighting one particular mid 18th century war on the side of the Austrians, and then the next war, the Seven Years' War, on the side of the Prussians, you could keep it going, and therefore most of your resources could be deployed outside of Europe to enhance trade routes and to get ever more colonies. This could only be damaged or challenged, Larry, when one of the European powers looked as if it was going to get control of all of the rest. That is to say, when the balance of power would be upset. And this was the alarming thing to the British 150 years ago when revolutionary France and Napoleon were able to take over many neighboring countries and looked as if we were going to get control of all of the German lands with its population and productivity and move into the Baltic and have enough resources so they could possibly outbuild the Royal Navy itself. Wellington's army balanced things defeated the French, restored an order, and were willing to be part of a five big power system, the concert of Europe, all through the prosperous 19th century. If only, Larry, this could continue. A large navy, but relatively slow military spending, a large overseas empire with great resources of raw materials and markets for your goods, agreeable situation where the European powers are roughly in balance, you would want that to go on. And so it did until two things happen. By 1914, the gigantic industrial technological advancements of imperial Germany look as if it's outstripping everybody else, even in peacetime. By 1913, German steel production is equal to that of Britain, France, and Italian steel production put together. And in 1914, the German army pushes for the taking over of Belgium in the Schlieffen Plan to knock France out of the war. And for the British, going all the way back to the age of Elizabeth. We like a balance of power in Europe, 
but please don't any one of you big guys take control of the other side of the English Channel. Don't take control of the Belgian shores or we will have to intervene. Next topic, the dominions. Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand thought of themselves as core components of the British Empire. They were truly brothers in every sense of the word, culturally, economically, and militarily. They were like one brotherhood. The dominions were stunned and hurt when the Brits decided to go all in with Europe after the Second World War. Now with Brexit, Boris Johnson wants to reboot British relations with the Dominions, but I think it's too little too late. You're right, too little too late. First of all, there's no equivalent in the other great European powers to the creation of these Dominions, these white settler populations which flood out of the United Kingdom from the 18th century to these different parts of the globe which are lightly populated which can be taken over with relative ease. I'm thinking of Australia here, but large parts of central and western Canada, which can, through cable communications, wireless and railway systems, and long-range shipping lines be brought into your British Empire, but converted into something else because they are white people just like us. They speak our language, give them a rule of law, their own courts, their own parliamentary systems, all going well. So that when Britain is sucked into the first of these giant European wars in 1914, it goes to war on behalf of itself and all of those dominions. The Governor General of Canada declares war on behalf of the British Empire, and most of the Canadians, apart from the French Canadians, think this is a good and noble thing. The Australians and New Zealanders do because all of them have been told they are part of the same homogeneous, racially, culturally intact system. The language, the culture, the purchase of things that would go in your kitchen, everything else is profoundly British. And what's more, Larry, it seems to work. Revisionist historians might sniff at it, But, you know, by 1917 and 1918, the British Empire has a gigantic Canadian army on the Western Front, Princess Patricia's regiment fighting somewhere in Picardy, right? You get Australian and New Zealand divisions being thrown onto the beaches at Gallipoli. And then when you get out of that really damaging war, you have these gallant and relatively loyal British Dominions who all stay together, provided you can encourage them to think that you are going to be fighting on their behalf, these guarantees to Australia, New Zealand, we will come and fight for you if the Japanese attack. And it works magnificently as Churchill saw it by 1940. He could ask for the whole of the British dominions to come and support Great Britain in the fight against the evil German empire in Europe. It's not surprising that after the Second World War, when the victory parades occur in London, there you see representatives of the Canadian troops, the Australian, South African, and New Zealand troops, all there because we fought as this incredible British Commonwealth of Nations. So when a British conservative government under Harold Macmillan say the future of Britain is more associated with this rising and prosperous 
integrated unit called the European Economic Community, there is, of course, this feelings of being let down and disappointed. What are you doing preferring Danish butter to New Zealand butter in these new economic arrangements? So despite all of the bluster about what Boris Johnson is up to, he's trying to articulate that great historical myth. You could recreate a British dominion, Commonwealth of Nations, and not be so reliant upon those Europeans. Go away, Germany. Why be a great power? What are the benefits? Can't small countries like Canada or Belgium benefit from great powers, military support, without paying for it in both money and lives? Leave it to the great powers. Keep me out of it. What a profound and interesting question. The debate goes on about why should we be a great power. There are voices within that country who would say, why should we do it? Why can't Canada just stay nice and neutral and prosperous? Why do we have to mobilize troops and send them off to fight? Why do we have to divert a large part of the economic and fiscal resources of Great Britain to build a big army to send over to fight in Europe? Can't we keep out and not fight? And why do we need to be a great power? Because sooner or later, you would be involved in a great power fight. One of my nicer examples of this is Sweden. It had for a long period from the Gustavus Adolphus onwards in the early 17th century said we are going to be a great power, mobilize a large army. We are going to march it across the Baltic. I'm sure there were many people in Sweden who were saying, why are our troops marching through Bavaria? After these extreme exertions of Sweden as a great power, though with a population not big enough to continue when the other great powers, after 1815 or so, the Swedes decide we've had enough of this. We are not going to spend on a big army. We are going to develop our internal resources. We are going to become steadily a social welfare state. And just don't bother us. We shall declare from the 19th century onwards that we are a neutral state in world affairs. As they do, as you know, very successfully and nimbly through the Second World War, although occasionally the Swedes worried that Adolf Hitler would turn and gobble them up as he had gobbled up Denmark and Norway. Some powers can get away with it. How quickly things change. Sweden recently announced plans to join NATO. Neutrality only makes sense when you think you can get away with it. There's a great newspaper headline in early August 1914 where the Manchester Guardian, a great liberal and progressive journal of the time, said, Belgrade cares as much about Manchester as Manchester cares about Belgrade. In other words, why should we have to go to war a long distance away? Why should we get involved in those distant great power politics? If you and I were sitting in some nice little pub in Stockholm, I certainly would be one of those Swedes saying, do we have to do it? Why not just stay out of this? Putin's Russia and its aggressive armies have tried to take over what was an independent state, Ukraine. They've caused an enormous reaction because of the brutality and the imperialist nature of what they're doing. We disapprove of that in all sorts of ways. We are willing to conform to a Western kind of economic and trading blockade of this aggressive country because it's done what is against the United Nations Charter. 
But why should we come out of our neutrality to join this NATO alliance, American-led alliance, against this Russian aggression? Surely the answer has to be, and this must be true even more so of Finland, we're turning our backs on decades of this neutral position because we really fear that that regime in Moscow is uncontrollable in its ambitions. That this taking over of the Ukraine would, if successful, then lead to increasing pressure upon those small Baltic states. And that we don't know the limits of this person's imperialist assertiveness. He clearly is somebody who really feels bitterly at the demise of the great Soviet Union. And if he wants to reinvent that Soviet Union, including going quite away into Eastern Europe and control of all of the Baltic, we should join the only force which is counterbalancing the apparent long-term aggressiveness of Moscow. I can only explain it in terms of the argument that for our security, it's better to be clear and join one side than to stay as what seems to be the advantageous neutral position which we've had for so many years. In the conclusion of your book, you mentioned that the two primary statistics that drives the great powers is GDP and population growth. When you look at the demographers' estimates over the next 25 and 50 years, the estimates are that the United States will grow its population slowly. The EU is flat and Russia is down. But countries like Nigeria will explode in population, growing to be larger than the U.S. and the EU, like 400 million people. Other countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo will have populations very similar to the size of the EU. Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania each will have populations equal to or greater than Russia's population. How do you think about these radical changes in populations across the globe and its impact on multipolarity and the role of the great powers? Population by itself, that is sheer numbers, five or six or seven children per family is not a good thing compared with another country which has two or three children per family. If the two or three children per family country, like the United States around 1900, has incredible investments in the productivity per capita of those within the society, if the productivity and output per capita of a country which has seven children is nothing because they are still in a rather rural, domesticated, low productivity circumstance, then the increasing numbers weakens your society rather than enhances it. The advantage to certain countries as they grow in world affairs is can we combine that technological and productive and industrial output with our growing population size. Clearly, in the early 19th century, the coalescing of the large German population into one single country under Bismarck and Adolf Hitler's Third Reich meant that Germany was more powerful than France, both because of its rising population size and because of its greater per capita productivity. This is the French fate of the 20th century. If your neighbor is growing faster than you, both in population terms and in productivity and wealth, 
then you have a problem because you start relatively declining as a great power. This is now the lesson for the 21st century as well. How do you combine a successful population per capita productivity with the size of your country when the greater size might actually take away from your strength if you do not have uh, industrial revolution and productivity revolution? Your 400 million Nigerians might be a source of weakness if only 50 million of those Nigerians are part of a productive middle class, but 350 million of them are poverty-stricken peasants. This is their great challenge. In the epilogue of Rise and Fall, you mentioned that China is an up-and-coming and might be a future great power. In your next edition, yet to be written, Will India be next in line? I will be starting again on this 2024 edition of the Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. Larry, I went back to look at that epilogue, to look at what I wrote back in 1988. Japan mysteriously had its growth rate stop and its population start going down after 1990. Was I right about Europe and its middle-of-the-way prospects? I think so. Was I cautiously right about the United States having to face shifts in the world balances, but still with the economic and military leadership, but with clever governance, it could stay at the top? Was I right about saying that if this China, after its communist internal stupidities of government in the 1960s, turned to long-term growth, will that China, if it's standard of living goes up and a standard of productivity go up, will it have the heft to change world affairs? Will an India by the year 2050, if it manages to deal with its internal social and poverty problems and have everybody in India rise up to the per capita standard of living of some of the European states, will India be a much larger force in world affairs? Yes, because it will be not only more prosperous in that cruder economic measure of it, but it can turn some of its enhanced wealth into building a much, much larger Indian Air Force and Navy and be a bigger power in world affairs. Will the United States relatively decline vis-a-vis India and China if these trends of different economic growth outcomes per year continue? Of course it will. It's just the pure mathematics of it. The U.S. economy grows 2 to 2.5% every year, and the Indian economy grows 7% every year, and the Chinese economy still goes 35 to 4% a year. You just do the mathematics by the year 2035, or 2050, there will be a shift in the power balances. Paul, I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to the great powers? What I'm optimistic about is that this nation will come back to the common sense of people like Truman and Eisenhower and begin to see that Americans combined can be much more of a success story and being a true leader in world affairs, not overextended, but willing to help our allies when we can. This takes leadership. I ended the rise and fall of the great powers by saying that 
if it is done successfully with nimble management and understanding at the top, the long-term relative decline of the United States in the 21st century is not a cause for alarm. It can be done with common sense and good intelligence. I cross my fingers. In your book, you focus on the role of GDP growth, productivity, and military might. And as you said in your opening remarks, you shied away from diplomatic history, unlike your peers, who focused on individual leaders and their talents. Why do you emphasize leadership now? Well, Larry, because I do think that even though most of the writings of this Yale historian Kennedy do tend to stress long-term economic shifts, at the end of the day, there have to be some people at the top of these vast concentrations of economic and military power who understand how it's done. I doff my hat still in great admiration to the way in which Churchill and Roosevelt came together with their chiefs of staff from late 1941 onwards to the end of the war. You cannot take the leadership story out of this. But if those leaders, Churchill and Roosevelt, didn't have the economic and organizational advantages underneath them, it would count for nothing. They would be like two very gentle Portuguese politicians talking with each other on the decks of an American warship off Argentina or something like that in 1941. It's when you get this wonderful combination of surplus resources, of power and organizational strength, and the leadership to weld it, which will protect you in peacetime and wartime, that you're able to advance as a great power in this ever-competitive system. Paul, you're going to be back again in two weeks on what happens next with a new podcast. And the topic will be your new book entitled Victory at Sea. Give your book a plug. It's a Paul Kennedy historian at Yale, one volume account of the naval battles from 1939 to 1945. At the beginning of the story, the United States is one of merely six great navies in the world. At the end of this story, the U.S. Navy has come out supreme. Right across the globe, the sheer output of American production, like a new aircraft carrier once a month entering the Pacific Fleet by 1943, which quite staggered the mind. So please think of this book as about how, at that time, the world order of power shifts from being a multipolar world to being the single polar world, at least in naval terms, from 1945 onwards. Thanks to Paul for joining us today. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's show. Our speaker next week will be John McGinnis, who is the George C. Dix Professor of Constitutional Law at Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law. John will be discussing Justice Alito's leaked opinion that overturns Roe versus Wade. I'll be asking John about how the leak will affect the norms of behavior on the court going forward, what Alito gets right and wrong about the constitutional law in this case, whether or not this opinion will get overturned in the future, and how our elected representatives will pass legislation in the void created by the absence of a constitutional protection for abortion. If you missed last week's program, check it out. Princeton professor of international relations Aaron Friedberg will discuss how we got China wrong and how we can fix it. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, 
Or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcast, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.